I'm going to uh, read a couple of passages that will be relevant to the, uh, the sermon. So please turn first to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, we'll read the first nine verses. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live and go and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God bestowed, destroyed from among, from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are, you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them. For what will be your wisdom and your, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the light of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For that great nation, what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord your God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. And also I'd like to read from James chapter 1, verses 17 through 27. So James chapter 1, 17 through 27. <clears throat> we'll start at 16, because it's a paragraph. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought, brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing." If anyone thinks he is right religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now I wanted to preach 
a good, encouraging New Year's message. So naturally, I went to the book of James. Um, I, did, I did preach on this same passage about 10 years ago. Um, and I don't remember that being a very encouraging message. It was a very convicting message. But I want to uh, re-preach this same passage with a different uh, perspective, where we're looking to the Word of God and to the Holy Spirit and to our regeneration as Christians as the thing that makes a difference between the Word being uh, the law of sin and death and the Word being the law of liberty. So um, the Scripture passages that we've read this morning all remind us of how important it is not only to hear, but to do, to obey the word of God. The chasm between knowing what is right and doing what is right is always, has always been mankind's greatest problem. Way back in the beginning, Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He'd given them that simple command, don't eat the, of that tree, and they did it. The serpent had promised that if they ate that fruit, they would become as gods. Um, but when they ate it, they found that not only they, but when they ate it, they found that though they now had knowledge of good and evil, their hearts had become captive to evil, and sin had become intrinsic to their souls. Their harmony with their Creator turned to discord. They became aware of their nakedness and covered themselves in fig leaves to make themselves presentable before God. But these coverings were inadequate. They represented human ingenuity to deal with sin by covering their shame. In an act of incredible mercy, God provided a new covering which pointed to a future act that would destroy the power of sin. He killed animals that he had created, shedding their blood, and made clothing for Adam and Eve. The message was clear. Sinful people could never work their way back into God's favor. They could never cover their own sin. They could not fool God with their garments of leaves. God himself would have to bridge the chasm of condemnation carved out by the rebellion. He would provide a sacrifice that would allow sinful people to, dis- to stand justified before the presence of of holy God. An an acceptable sacrifice would be made, blood would be shed, the serpent would strike at the heel of the woman's holy offspring, but the sun would crush the serpent's head. The garments of animal skins God gave to Adam and Eve were a temporary covering, an unrealized hope of redemption. But the death of Jesus Christ on the cross would provide would provide true and final atonement, true and final forgiveness of sins, and true and final peace with God. It is by that blood that we read, this is in the book of Genesis, we read in the book of Revelation, by this blood that Jesus purchased men for God from every tribe and every people and every nation. Commands that once seemed harsh and restrictive after this sacrifice and after the receiving of this sacrifice of Christ would become delightful and obeying them would no longer be a burden. 
those who would trust in God's provision would no longer obey grudgingly, but joyously in an act, uh, as an act of worship. This morning, we're going to focus our attention on James chapter 1, verses 17 through 27, while referring to the other passages that we've read to illustrate and amplify the truths brought out in this passage. Now, this is key to understanding James. If you read the book of James all by itself, you can, become, you can come away very works-heavy, and um, you can come away feeling very beat up. But we need to remember that the Bible is a unified book that works progressively to give us clear understanding of who we are, who God is, and how we as God's creatures are to worship our Creator. James, one of the earliest New Testament writers and the half-brother of Jesus, draws on what God has revealed in the Old Testament and through his son Jesus Christ in order to show us how, not, how to be not only hearers but also doers of the word. We will cover this passage under four headings. In verses 17 through 18, we'll see that the gift of God's word regenerates the heart. In verses 19 through 21, we'll see that receiving God's word produces holiness. In verses 22 through 25, we will see that persevering in God's word activates the hearer. And then finally, we'll see in verses 26 and 27 that practicing God's word overcomes hypocrisy. So let's begin with this first observation, which is that the gift of God's word regenerates the heart. Now, I'd pa- preached this passage before, but I had started in verse 19, because that's kind of where the big division is in the ESV. But I realize if I leave out these first two verses, it, it uh, completely changes the, the approach to that passage. This context is very important. The gift of God is the, the context of all of this, and the gift of God is the word of God that regenerates the heart. So in verse 17, it says, Every good and perfect, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Right away, James points us to the character of God. He is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Indeed, he is a creator of all things. James calls him the father of lights. In Jewish, Jewish literature, it was common to refer to the sun and the moon and the stars as the lights. Genesis chapter 1 talks about how God created these lights to mark the times and the seasons. God is the father, the initiator of these lights. Notice that God, create, God said, let there be light before he created anything else so that these lights would not be worshipped. God is the creator, the initiator. The original light came from him. But unlike the sun and the stars and the planets that travel in orbits and deteriorate, deteriorate with time, whose light is obscured by shadows as they rotate and revolve, God is not subject to change. There is no variation in him, no shadow due to change. There is no insecurity or volatility in his character. The gifts that he gives are consistent with his character. And one of those gifts, one of those good and perfect gifts, is his word. Verse 18 says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. 
In other words, God brought us to life, and he did so by his word. This goes far beyond the initial creation of man, although man was created along with all things by the word of God. In James 20, in verse James, in verse 21, sorry, James refers to the implanted word, which is able to save our souls. It is clear that the bringing forth or birthing that is spoken of here is not the first creation, but a new creation, a bringing to life of hearts that were dead in trespasses and sins. This means that God has chosen to save lost sinners. The means, pardon me, that God has chosen to, lead, to save lost sinners is the proclamation of his word, the preaching of the gospel. 1 Peter 1.23 gives more insight into the regenerating power of God's word. It says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all of its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the good news that was preached to you. So, to sum it up, the good news that was preached to us caused us to be born again. God accomplishes this regeneration, not in response to our wills or desires, but according to his own will. He chooses to give life to people under the curse of death, and he does so by the decree of his will through the preaching of his word. The Apostle Paul affirms in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where he writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, if you believe that you can be justified before God by doing your best to keep his commandments, you're missing the point. If you believe in the gospel of love, and you say love is the gospel, love everyone, love God, love your neighbor, and that is the gospel. You're missing it. That is not the gospel. That is the law. The fact that God gave us commandments that are summed up in those two, love God and love your neighbor, and told us to keep them is not good news at all. The commandments lay out God's requirements. And remember, we studied in Matthew chapter 5, what are God's requirements? Be perfect, therefore, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Perfectly keep the law. Clearly, the word of God consists not only of the law, but also the gospel. The good news that God sent his son into the world to die in the place of sinners. The gospel is a power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Those who do not believe or who rely on their own righteousness rather than God's provision in Christ will not benefit from the gospel. James is writing to believers. He calls them his beloved brothers. Uh, who have been brought forth according to God's will through faith in the word of truth, which is the gospel. It is only the reborn heart that loves the law of God and that has the desire to obey it. It is only the reborn heart that is offended by its own sin and is called back again and again to the gospel, to Christ's perfect, sinless life and obedient death on the cross in his place. 
The believer's obedience is never perfect, but Christ's obedience was and is, and that is what justifies a sinner before God. Any other claim to righteousness will be as effective before God as were Adam and Eve's garments of fig leaves. At the end of verse 18, James says that those who are brought forth by the word of God are a kind of first fruits of all creation. The first fruits of a crop give tangible hope of great abundance to follow. What God accomplishes in the human heart through the gospel is only a precursor to what he will accomplish in the redeeming of the entire creation. He will make all things new. But the starting point of it all is the miracle of bringing to life those whom he calls through the gospel. We can see clearly then that it is the belief in the gospel that results in spiritual life. The gift of God's word regenerates the heart. Now moving on to verses 19 through 21, we see that receiving God's word produces holiness. Verse 19 says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. In verse 18, believers are called first fruits, and the emphasis is on productivity. But every farmer knows that not everything that grows in a field contributes to the harvest. The vigilant farmer finds a re, fights a relentless battle against seeds that he didn't plant. Alien tares that choke out the grain. James seems to have something like this in mind when he cautions his readers to be good listeners and careful speakers who do not slip into anger. This might seem like kind of a random matter for him to focus on, but later in his letter, James says that if anyone can control his tongue, he's a perfect man able to control his own body. The, thing we say, the things we say function as a barometer of the weather that's brewing in our hearts. They are an indicator of the degree of wickedness that lies within. Now, later on in the same book, James says that no man can tame his tongue. Who is the only perfect man who's ever tamed his tongue? That's Christ. And as in any, any, everything else, we rely on Christ's righteousness for this. James is not giving us a command that we cannot fulfill. He is pointing us to the Savior through whom we fulfill that command. We see that the reason to avoid careless conversation that leads to anger is that the anger of God does not produce, again, we're talking about fruitfulness here, does not produce the righteousness of God. When God plants the seed of the gospel in a believer's heart, he does so with the intention of harvesting righteousness. He does not plant loose conversation and anger in the heart. Those come from the enemy. He plants the word of truth. The anger and the things that go along with it, such as filthiness and rampant wickedness, come from the old nature or the flesh. Jesus describes the old nature in the passage we read, we read, pardon me, from Mark chapter 7. He says, from, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, 
murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. That is how we are by nature. But God gives every believer a new heart. Each Christian still fights the battle with his old nature, Adam's sin nature that rebels against God and seeks its own interest. Only when the saints are raised with Christ at his second coming will this old nature be eradicated. The good news is that unlike unbelievers, Christians are equipped with a sort of broad-spectrum herbicide that not only kills the weeds but fertilizes the grain. The antidote to the sin that threatens the soul is the very word that brought the soul to life. James called it the implanted word. Not only does the word give life, it also sustains and nourishes life. Paying attention to the word is the alternative to paying attention to the world and thus hindering the righteousness of God, the holiness that he requires. It is through meekly receiving the word that sin is defeated. A person may be saved with very limited knowledge of the scriptures, but if that person is truly saved, there is an inherent desire to know more about God and to fill his heart and mind with truth. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. It has 176 verses, and every verse extols the virtues of the word of God. It is composed of 22 sections, each labeled with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. To me, it seems like this billboard, so obviously focusing on the word and even the letters, is God's way of telling us how important Scripture is to our spiritual growth and to a righteous life. In verses 9 through 11, along with many other verses, we see the effectiveness of the word of God in conquering sin. Verse 9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. All of Psalm 119 is about receiving God's word with meekness, as James describes. Receiving God's word produces holiness. But holiness consists more of more than not doing evil. It also involves doing good. Again, our response to the word of God is the key to doing the things that please God. So that's our third point here is persevering in God's word activates the hearer. In verse 22 we read, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. From these verses, we see that it is possible to hear God's word and remain unaffected by it. It is possible to be a hearer and not a doer. Many professing Christians fall into this category. They go to church week after week, stifle their yawns through the scriptures, the prayers, and the sermon, 
watching the interm interminable seconds tick by and daydreaming of the important things they will do once they are released by the benediction. They leave the service exactly as they came, though perhaps a little better rested. Their ears have heard the word, but their hearts remain unchanged. Let me say clearly and tenderly, these are either in rebellion and in need of discipline if they are God's children, or they are not God's children at all. The mark of genuine faith in Christ is that the word of God produces fruit, evidence of conversion. If the parallel in the parable of the, scroll, of the soils, it is the seed that lands on good soil and produces fruit that represents the true believer. The green shoot that sprouts up from the rocky ground but soon shrivels and dies represents a person who is stirred by hearing God's word, but more as a curiosity or a mental exercise or an emotional response. Their interest is fleeting and fleshly. The seed has not taken root. James uses the metaphor of a man looking into a mirror to describe one who hears the word but does not put it into practice. A mirror doesn't change anything about you. But it shows you some things that need attention, like a smudge of dirt on your cheek or a wayward lock of hair or a bit of green onion in your teeth. It would be foolish to, say, to have this information available and not act on it, especially when, as James says, the man looks intently into the mirror. Now notice when he talks about when he walks away, he forgets not what he looks like, but what he was like. So this is a good mirror. It reveals even the thoughts and intentions of your heart. It tells you what you are actually like. So the, 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 this foolish man walks away and he forgets what he looks like. Uh, this, and he's foolish because he is not paying attention to what he sees. He's not heeding the message. The message that the mirror delivers has no effect on him. In the passage we read earlier from Deuteronomy chapter 4, the children of Israel are explicitly warned not to forget what they have seen in God's righteous commandments. Moses says, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Now, back to James, he abandons the metaphor of the mirror and moves on to what the metaphor actually represents. Here, a man looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres. This means that he looks at God's word and sees himself clearly. He also sees God's goal of producing righteousness in him and God's perfect commandments. But he does not walk away. He perseveres. He stays with it. He wrestles with it. He compares scripture with scripture and scripture to his own heart. He seeks counsel from mature believers. And then he does what it says. He brings in life his life in harmony with the text. James says that such a man will be blessed in what he does. The person who only hears will not be blessed. And without a change of heart, 
will not be saved. Please notice how the word of God is described here. It is the perfect law, the law of liberty. Now, James is not advocating some kind of theonomy or some sort of salvation by works. Because only a believer can look at God's righteous law and say, this is liberty for me. Do you remember the Apostle John? He talks about an, a commandment. An old, I'm writing an old commandment to you. It's nothing new. Then he says, at the same time, it's a new commandment. Why? Because the light has come into the world and is already shining. See, it's the same, it's the same old commandment, but it's different. It's different when we know Jesus and when Jesus has caused us to delight in his law rather than to cower under it because that law is fulfilled in our Savior, Jesus Christ. To the true believer, for the, believer, for the unbeliever, God's law is only a reminder of sin. It's only a restriction of pleasure and an infringement of free will. To the true believer, the law is an opportunity for his regenerated heart to live out the godly life that has been planted within him. The positive requirements of the law, with their emphasis on doing good, open the door to endless opportunities for growth and fruitfulness. There is nothing loathsome about the law to a heart that has been transformed by the gospel. When a person has been regenerated by the word and receives it with meekness, it only follows naturally that he will put it into practice. This brings us to our final observation about our text, which is that practicing God's word overcomes hypocrisy. It says in verse 26, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Verses 26 and 27 do a good job of summarizing the main emphases of our passage. One of the inter, interwoven themes in the book of James is that of hypo, hypocrisy, the, the idea of profession of faith that does not match the life of the professor. We've been warned against activities that do not produce the righteousness of God. One way to describe the righteousness of God, mentioned in verse 20, is religion. Um, Christians, many of them, like to say it's not about religion, it's about relationship. It's both. God's perfect standard is summed up in the word religion. And we practice this through our relationship with Christ. And to say that there is not a perfect standard, it's erasing something really important. And James uses this word. It's a Bible word. So we shouldn't be afraid of it. Uh, so in verses 26 and 27, we see a contrast, though, between worthless religion and pure and undefiled religion. Worthless religion is a kind where a person outwardly ascribes to the doctrines of Christianity, but then goes out and curses his brother or blasphemes God or uses profane language. Again, James zones in on the uncontrolled tongue as an indicator of the sin that lurks within him. Any man who says he's religious but does not bridle his tongue deceives himself. 
Not only that, but his religion is worthless. You see that man, and when we see man, we mean people, have not put God's word into practice. That man who uh, is not bridling his tongue, he has heard it. Yes, he has made some profession of belief, but he has not been regenerated by it. Uh, I'm not saying that if you ever misspeak that you're lost. But that is definitely something that comes from the old nature. And if you've got no control over your tongue, um, and you never have, and you don't care, take a good look. Take a good look at the mirror and see if, it, if you're still under condemnation or whether you can turn to Jesus and be forgiven. He has not preserved, pardon me, he has not, this man who, who was uh, uh, speaking rashly like this has not pres- persevered in the word, but has, as it were, seen himself in the mirror and then walked away and forgotten, uh, sorry, and forgotten that there was egg all over his face. In this he deceives himself thinking there is no connection between his profession of faith and his practice of faith. In contrast, James shows us what true, true religion, true righteousness of God looks like. He says in verse 27, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Much as James uses the unbridled tongue as a kind of shorthand for all sorts of sin, He now gives a poignant vignette of true religion. Notice that he specifically says that his religion, this religion, is pure and undefiled before God the Father. Initially, he referred to God as the Father of lights, but now it gets personal. In this context, he is seen as the Father whose heart is tender toward his children, toward widows and orphans. True religion is to visit widows and orphans in their their affliction, Of course, there are many other ways true righteousness can be demonstrated. Caring for widows and orphans, however, encapsulates the second great commandment and the second table of the law, which exhorts us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. If your religion is worth anything, it will manifest in how you treat your neighbors, not just those who are rich or prominent or desirable, but those in dire circumstances who can likely give you nothing in return for your kindness. Now, just a, a caveat, um, there is such a thing as, as uh, foolish giving and taking care of people who really are just taking advantage of you. And Paul warns us about that as he speaks to Timothy about widows who are busybodies and who are able to work and are, uh, but are taking from the church collection. Or he, he says, don't, don't do that. But when people are in need, true, true religion manifests in taking care of them. This, according to James, is the outworking of true religion. Along with this positive action, we are also to keep ourselves unstained from the world. Again, for this, we need to go back to the word of God. The scriptures stand in stark contrast to the wisdom of the world, revealing the things that God loves and the things that he hates. And are we ever seeing the contrast? If we look at our world today, 
even God's very definitions of marriage, of, of, of men, of women, it's all being polluted. And the scripture stands in contrast. And churches are caving to the spirit of the age, to the, the zeitgeist, if you will. They are caving to this in massive numbers. Churches, whole denominations. Um, and this is something to be greatly concerned about. The scriptures show us what God loves and what he hates. And if the church is loving what God hates, the church isn't the church. And if a believer is loving what God hates, um, that believer is in need of some discipline and of a good look in the mirror. The Christian lives in a world that is hostile toward the things of God. The God of this world has blinded the minds of those who practice wickedness. Without the indwelling spirit of God, without the regeneration that comes from believing the gospel, without receiving and persevering in the word of God, the world will pollute and assimilate every well-meaning professor of religion. James clearly endorses the practice of true religion, undefiled before God, which is really what this whole passage is about. But his message is so much more than just stop doing evil and start doing good. If that were all there was to pleasing God, Jesus would have never had to die. Because we can't stop doing evil and start doing good to God's satisfaction. No one can. I invite you today to examine your heart in the light of God's word. To look for evidence of his grace, of the righteousness of God being produced in your life. How have you heard this message today? Will you walk away unchanged? Or will you receive it with meekness? Persevere. Don't turn away. Trust in the Lord Jesus who died for you to regenerate your heart or to forgive you so that you can be a doer of the word and not only a hearer. May God give us all grace as we look to Jesus, our righteousness, and our salvation. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the very clear language that you gave to James to express this matter of what true religion is, but more so, how a person can look into the, the law that to a, a, an unsaved person only represents death and judgment and to look at it as the law of liberty. We say with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. We do thank you for the liberty we have in Jesus through the forgiveness of our sins, through a new heart. We thank you that we are brought forth by the word of God. And I pray, Lord, that the seed of the gospel would find its place in hearts that are here today. And Lord, that it would not only sprout up as some sort of immediate reaction, but Lord, that it would bring forth fruit. And I pray, Lord, that um, we would not be confused and think that our salvation is by the things that we do 
or don't do, or by simply keeping ourselves from evil. But salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And through Jesus, we can accomplish and we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We pray now that you would bless us as we go from here. And, Father, that um, indeed we would receive the word of God with meekness. In Jesus' name, amen. Kelly and Mickey are going to come and lead us in hymn number 377. May the, may the mind of Christ be, I forget the whole name of the song, but that's the, number 377. Please stand if you'd like to. Number 377. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. 
Amen.